It's getting very exciting back there, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity for us to meet together. Lord, may we hear your voice and your voice only. Amen. Um, I have the um, enviable situation where um, I'm actually doing both the preaching this morning and I'm doing the tech desk as well. So if things do go wrong with the microphone or the PowerPoint, I get the, to uh, glare at myself. Um, so um, in my personal Bible study lately, I've been working through the uh, Gospel of Luke. And a couple of weeks ago, I read a passage that is what I want to talk about today. And it's in Luke chapter 9. One day, Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. Then he sent them out to tell everyone about the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Take nothing for your journey, he instructed them. Don't take a walking stick, a traveler's bag, food, money, or even a change of clothes. Wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. And if a town refuses to welcome you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you've abandoned these people to their fate. So they began their circuit of the villages, preaching the good news and healing the sick. And then just skipping ahead there to verse 10. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they'd done. Then he slipped away quietly with them toward the town of Bethsaida. This passage, when I was reading it a couple of weeks ago, got me thinking again about the subject of discipleship, which is uh, something I've spoken about here before. Um, but it got me thinking about it from a different angle, which is what I want to talk about today. Um, before I start on that, I guess what I feel I need to do is uh, to just talk about what is discipleship. Because... I mean, I'm sure a lot of you uh, are very aware of what discipleship is, but I just want to make sure that we're all on the, on the same page. Because in Jesus' culture, discipleship was a, an understood thing. It was just part of their culture. Whereas for us, it's not something that we're used to. Uh, we, um, over the last couple of hundred years, I would say, in our culture, we've developed much more an understanding of, of teaching and learning, which is more based on a sort of classroom setting, uh, where there is somebody up front and they speak, and you learn from that. And often, if you go to school, you learn a lot of abstract topics, such as uh, math, uh, grammar, and so on, or things that aren't necessarily directly related to your everyday life, like uh, history or geography. And all of those things are good, and that's not, that's not uh, a problem. But it, discipleship um, is different. And um, within the church also, we've kind of tended toward that idea of teaching. Um, and so we have what we've called Sunday school. Uh, and there's this uh, idea, really, it goes actually all the way back to Plato, of that as long as we know the truth. As long as we're taught truth, we'll do it. Uh, which is something which I'll come back to later. 
Um, but discipleship was something different, and I still think the best, probably the best modern uh, analogy or thing which we still have in our culture which relates to discipleship is apprenticeship. It doesn't cover everything that uh, discipleship was like, but discipleship in Jesus' day, pretty much anyone who had any sort of profession had a disciple. So if you were a carpenter, you had a disciple. If you were a stonemason, you had a disciple. If you were a teacher, you had a disciple, and so on. And what would happen was that the disciple would come and spend their life with you. And so you would teach them. You would teach them truth, because there are truths you need to know. If you're a carpenter, you might start off by saying, this is a chisel. You need to know what this is. It's important to have basic understanding of things. But the uh, master in the discipleship relationship would also model. So the disciple would be watching the master as they did their job, as they lived their lives. And so the disciple would learn from them as they did so. They would just see what they do. And the master would question them, would give them challenges, would make them think. And then what would happen would be that the master would give the disciple opportunities to try something out. So again, let's say a carpenter might say, okay, you've seen me make chairs. I guess they didn't really have chairs, did they? But anyway, we'll go with that theory. They, you've seen me make chairs here, make a chair. And the disciple would make a chair. And then they would both stand back and look at this chair. And if it was the first one, they'd probably question it and sigh and maybe say, okay, well, it was a first try, that's fine. Um, but the disciple is learning in that safe environment right there with the master. And one of the beauties of that, of course, is the fact that now the disciple will continue to learn from the master and will watch more closely because they realize the things they got wrong and they don't maybe understand quite why it didn't work for me, but it did work for you. So now I'm going to give it a, you know, I'll pay more attention to what you're doing. And so they will learn more uh, as they go. But the end result is that the disciple doesn't stay a disciple. They go out and they become a master themselves. And they have disciples of their own and so on. And that's how trades and how teaching and so on was passed down from generation to generation. And that is what Jesus was doing with his disciples. So uh, you know he had a lot of people who followed him who were his disciples, but he also chose 12 specifically who were with him all day, every day. And they understood what that meant in practice, was that they were going to be learning from him. So he taught them. They uh, learned truth from him directly, which was vital that they learn the truth about God and about who he is. They also got to see him model it. They saw him teaching other people. They saw him healing. They saw him interacting with opponents. They saw how he dealt with interruptions in daily life. They saw how he dealt with just anything in, in a situation that he went through. And now, in Luke chapter 10, what happens is the moment where Jesus says, your turn. Out you go and do this. Now again, because they understood what a disciple was about, they would have known this moment was coming. But I still think it was probably pretty scary. Because, you know, they've seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen him cast out demons. 
they've seen him teach, now they're going out and doing it. But again, Jesus is doing it in a safe environment, isn't he? Yes, he's not physically going to be with them as they go out to their different villages, but they can come back again and they can share what they've learned. And so by the time we get to the book of Acts, where Jesus is finally saying to them, I'm physically not gonna be here anymore, you go, it's not new. They've done it before, they've seen it, they understand it's not being abandoned, it's not sudden, you know, oh my goodness, they've been there, they've understood it, and it's happened here in Luke chapter nine. But the thing which particularly struck me about it when I was uh, reading it a couple of weeks ago was back in verse one, where it says, one day Jesus called together his 12 disciples and gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all diseases. The corresponding passage in Matthew, by the way, uh, because this is recorded in three of the four Gospels, actually also says he gave them power to raise the dead. And so the thing that struck me about it was that Jesus didn't hold anything back. He didn't say to them, okay, you guys go out and I'll let you cure a bunch of diseases. Uh, Leprosy is my deal. You leave that to me, but you, know, you guys do everything else. He didn't say, Cast out, all, you know, cast out all demons, but I'll do the healing. He didn't even say, you can cast out all demons, you can heal the sick, but uh, raise the dead, that's my jam. You kind of leave that one with me. Uh, he gave them all authority. And what struck me about that is discipleship is humility. When we disciple people, we're pouring out our lives into theirs so that they will be able to go and do great things, and do greater things. And in fact, Luke 10 is interesting, because the very next chapter after Luke 9, funnily enough, Luke 10, Jesus sends out a bunch more. Let's read what happens here. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Now go, and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality, because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. And the, so the instructions to this 72 are almost identical actually to the instructions to the 12. Jesus is expanding his mission. He's sending out more disciples now. But notice what happens when they come back. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. At that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and he said, O oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
Thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do this way. Jesus is delighted with the results. They come back and they're really excited about everything God's done. And Jesus is overjoyed. And in fact, this passage here is probably the most joyful we see Jesus in the Gospels. He's overjoyed that they're doing all the things he has been doing. His pride isn't hurt. He doesn't feel less special. Why? Because this was his aim all along. This is what he'd been working toward. He didn't feel diminished in his work. In fact, this was his work. This was the completion of all that he was doing. If we look at John chapter 12, this is toward the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the last week of his life on earth. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. Jesus replied, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. So the situation is that Jesus is saying, okay, these Greeks have come, they want to talk to him. He's like, I don't have time. I'm only one person, I can't do this. I'm going to die though, and then there will be a great crop. One seed is great, it's a good thing. But in order for a great crop to happen, the seed has to die. And his, I, his point is that these Greeks, right now he doesn't have time for them, but you guys, you disciples, you're gonna go. You're gonna see them, you're gonna talk to them. You're gonna have a bigger impact than I possibly can do because I'm just one seed. Even Jesus, the Son of God, when he's on earth, only has that uh, ability to be the one seed. And he's obviously talking specifically about his death on the cross. But I think he's also talking about this overall idea of dying to ourselves so that there can be a greater crop. And when we disciple other people, that's what we do. We pour our lives into them, not so that we get praise, not so that we look good, but so that they can go and do great things. And then we can rejoice when they do so. And in fact, John 14 makes this point even stronger. This is Jesus again to his disciples. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I'll do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. He's not trying to hold things back. He's not saying, you know, you guys just make sure you keep your place and everything. He wants them to go and do greater things. And when he does, he's delighted. And that same attitude is the one which we should have when we're trying to disciple other people. Our heart has to be one of humility. We're not doing this so that we get more recognition or our ego can be stroked. 
We're doing it so that the ones we disciple can go and do far more than we ever could. And when they do, we're overjoyed because this was our aim all along, to make ourselves redundant. And probably then find more disciples. So that's all well and good, and that's fine. But what does discipleship look like in practice in our culture? There's a lot in that. And I don't have time to cover all of that this morning, obviously. But uh, what I have done is prepare some questions for life group time so that in your life groups, hopefully, hopefully you can delve a little more deeply into what, in practice, discipleship means for you and for us. But I just want to touch a few points here uh, while I can. First thing I want to say is that Jesus is discipling us still today. I think this is kind of a crucial point to remember, is that he hasn't stopped discipling. He's still doing it today in us who are following him. We are his disciples, and we'll never stop being his disciples. Uh, This is one reason why we pray. It's a reason why we read the Bible. As we read the Bible, we get taught truth, right? We learn truth, which is a vital part of discipleship. And as we pray, we meet with our master. We learn from him. He teaches us. And he still models today. Uh, In the Gospels, we don't physically get to see Jesus, but in the Gospels, we get to see how Jesus lived, what he did, how he prayed, how he dealt with situations, just as his disciples did. And so he models for us what we need to do. And then he gives us opportunities to put it into practice every day. In every situation we face throughout the day, he gives us opportunities to put into practice what he's been teaching us. And I think this is one of the key things about discipleship, is to recognize these opportunities for what they are. Those minor or major things that happen during the day, the irritations, the person who cuts you up in traffic, the lack of sleep, the unexpected sickness, the great thing that happened, whatever it may be, those things are not just events. They are opportunities to put into practice what he has been teaching us. And then at the end of the day, we can come back to him and talk to him again, just like the disciples did when they'd gone out. And we can say sorry for the times we failed. We can celebrate the good things that happened. We may pay more attention because of the things where we didn't get it right and we need to learn from him better again. So that Jesus is discipling us every day. He will always be our master and we'll always be his disciples. We don't ever get to graduate from that. Um, And that's fine. We want to stay close to him. But it's, it's a lifelong experience, which seems a bit strange. If you think about it objectively, it seems a bit odd, right? You would think that, logically speaking, we would learn a truth, we'd put it into practice, there you go, nice and easy, right? That should be how we work. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard. Um, But in practice, I don't, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I'm only going to do that. But in practice, it doesn't work like that. I keep getting the need to be taught the same lesson over and over again. Um, and we learn, we fail, we take two steps forward, we take one step back, uh, but he is patient with us. 
And that is very vital. If you look at Jesus' life, actually, interestingly, right after, in Luke chapter 9, the very next thing that happens in Luke chapter 9, Jesus takes, we read that verse where it says, Jesus went aside with his disciples. The very next thing that happens is a whole crowd of people follow them. And the disciples come to him and say, we don't have food to feed these people. Send them home, send them away. They need to go somewhere. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. And he meant it. They've just come back from preaching. They've just come back from healing the sick. Yes, feeding 5,000 is a different thing, but they should be ready to do that. That's Jesus' point. Um, they're not ready, so Jesus does it. Okay, you would think they learned the lesson. A little while later, the same thing happens again, the feeding of the 4,000. What happens there? I love the way it's worded there, by the way, in the feeding of the 4,000, if you get to read it in Mark, um, where Jesus actually goes to his disciples and said, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of people here. What are we going to do? If I send them away, they won't be able to make it to the villages. What shall we do? And the disciples are like, I don't know, we got nothing there, no idea. And he's like, Okay, so he feeds the 4,000. It takes time, you know, even the disciples who are right there with Jesus, it took them a while to, for lessons to sink in. And so it, he is patient with us, and we obviously need to be patient with ourselves, actually, and also with other people. So Jesus is discipling us still, but we also get to disciple each other. Now, how does that look? Um, I think a primary place, a very primary place that happens in our setting is within the family, especially parents discipling children. Now, not everybody gets to do that. Not everybody has children. And even for those of us who do have children, it's just a phase of life. It's not, you know, all of your life you're going to be discipling those children. But it is very important opportunity for discipleship because those kids are with us. It's full-on discipleship like the disciples with Jesus. You know, they're around you all day, every day. They get to see you. You get to teach them truth. You get to pass on what you know, what you've learned about God. And you get to model it. In fact, you had no choice. One way or another, you're discipling them and modeling something. So um, hopefully you can model the right things. Um, and again, it's taking opportunities. It's realizing that those moments that happen throughout the day are opportunities to disciple, to teach them. Um, I, without embarrassing them, uh, the Pinions are very good at this. I love going to their house. Um, and if you've had that opportunity, you'll see that what they do is they, when there's, say, a dispute between a couple of the kids... They won't just wade in there. They will encourage those kids to think about, okay, what does God say about this situation? What does God think about that other person? What is, what's the right way to handle this? What's, you know, not just uh, practicalities, but taking a step back and looking at what is really going on here and what does God say? And that takes time and that takes work. And lessons don't get learned first time, just like for us. But that's what we can do as parents when we have that opportunity is to look for those chances to teach our children, to model, to
to question, to get them to think. Those of you who know me know I'm a very big fan of questioning, of thinking, making people challenge and, and think about things. And another thing we get to do as parents is to give opportunities, which I think, personally speaking, is one of the hardest things to do. Um, there's that old saying, isn't there? Give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Uh, teach him to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Which is true, and that's discipleship. But it's also immediately obvious that it's so much easier to just give him a fish. It's so much quicker, you know? And especially if you're trying to teach him to fish and he's really not getting it, and he's really bad at this, and you just want to take the rod back from him and say, look, let me do this for you, you know? And it's, it's like that with our kids as well, you know, and, or with anyone we're trying to disciple. It's so much easier and faster to do it yourself. And if you've been a parent and you've had little kids and they've said, I want to make a cake, you know that sinking feeling um, where you think, okay, yeah, we can do this. It's going to be so much work and so much mess. But they need to learn how to do it, right? Um, there are times when you can, you have to say, okay, not today, but it's going to be hard, but they need to learn, and so you teach them. Um, but discipleship is like that, it's messy, it's hard, it's slow, it takes a while. But we do do it. Um, as a, an example, you know, we, love makes it so much easier to do, doesn't it? So as an example, with a little kid, you teach them how to walk. In theory, it'd be easier to just carry them everywhere, although obviously as they get bigger, that gets less and less easy, but you know they need to walk. And so you teach them how to do it. And the first step they take, they fall, and they hurt themselves, and they cry, and it's hard, and it takes a while, and then they get a few steps, and you think, yes, they're getting it. And then the next day, they seem to have lost every recognition or understanding of how to do this thing. And so you have to take a deep breath, and you try again, and, and so on. And it takes weeks, it takes months to teach them how to walk properly, but then they're walking, and then they're running, and then they're running faster than you, uh, not least probably because you've just spent all your time on your knees trying to teach them how to walk and you can't get up again. But, um, you know, you, you love it when they're running and you, you're overjoyed, right? Because they can do this and you're excited and delighted for your children. And so... That is a great example of the discipleship we just naturally do. And that is what our aim as parents should be, is the same as any discipler. We're training them so that one day they don't need us anymore. That's our aim. They can run. And our greatest joy should be that moment when they leave home and are ready because we've trained them well. Now, you may be delighted when they leave home for other reasons too, but... Um, your delight is that they're ready. You've trained them. They're ready now to go and fly and do far more than we could ever do. And that is the goal of the discipler. That is our joy. I'm sure I've used this picture before. I know from, from me, one of the ways I picture it is, uh, is trying to bump start a car where there's somebody in the driver's seat. The car's not going, so you're pushing and pushing and pushing, right? And it's going so slowly because pushing a car is slow. But suddenly the engine catches and off they go. And they're going so much faster than you could ever push them. And that is the, the picture I always have in my mind of discipleship. The joy of knowing off they go. 
They don't need me anymore. This is great. Um, but we can disciple each other outside of the family as well. Um, and again, I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but uh, an example of this um, came up a couple of weeks ago again, this time with my daughter, Natalie, who's at college. She contacted me and we were talking and there was an opportunity she wanted to get involved with. But she really felt that there was an area in her life which she wasn't very strong on, she needed to get better at. And it was purely the area of um, being able to start good conversations with strangers. And so we talked about that and I said to her, well, what, what I'd suggest you to do is to look around you at college or at your local church there and find somebody who's really good at that because there are people who are great at that kind of thing. Find someone like that and then ask them to disciple you. Ask them to teach you how they do it. Now, they may not, sometimes people, especially that kind of thing, may not be able to put into words exactly why it is they're able to start conversations really well with complete strangers. But that's okay, because you can watch them as they model it for you. And then you can learn, and you can try it for yourself. And as you try it, you realize the bits you get wrong. You fall flat sometimes. That's going to happen. But you can go back and learn some more, and so on. Uh, you can do it um, in individual moments. It doesn't have to be like a, a whole big commitment, but you can do what you might even call stealth discipleship, where, say, you're in a life group and you hear somebody who prays really well, and you think, I want to learn how to pray better like them. So you just listen to them and learn from them, making that conscious effort to grow in these areas. And they don't need ever to know that you're doing that. Uh, which is why I call it stealth discipleship, but um, we can learn from other people because other people, we're part of a family, we're part of a body, and we can grow from each other. And we can disciple other people too. Now, we can, people are watching us anyway a lot of times, and so we do, we talked about with the children how they're always watching us, um, but in every other setting as well, people are learning from us and seeing us. Um, I think, to be honest, that discipleship, at least in, in, as I would see it in our setting, is easier if the one person comes to the other and says, can you disciple me in some way or other, rather than us going to that person and saying, let me disciple you. Um, but that can happen too. Um, and I think that there is a, a real humility, actually, in being able to honestly say, you know what, I do have something to offer. I have had life experience. I have seen situations like this. I can come alongside you and help you, whether, who, whichever side initiates it. As I said, I don't have the chance here to tackle all the practicalities of discipleship. So I just want to return at the end to the heart of it. John chapter 12. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me.
Again, John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I'll do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I'll do it. I want to emphasize, just to close, that we can only disciple others while we are being discipled by Jesus. What we have to offer to them comes from him. If you remember back in that Luke passage, it starts with Jesus giving them the authority to heal and to preach and cast out demons. If they had tried to do it without that, they would have failed. What we have to offer to others comes from him. So while we stay close to him, we have something to pass on to others. He's the one who gives us the strength, the wisdom, the love, the power. And as we disciple others with this heart and this love and this desire to see them fly far beyond us and need us no longer, we're following Jesus very closely indeed because that's his heart. Discipleship is slow because we learn slowly. Discipleship is messy. It's not some easy curriculum that we can follow and then graduate after passing an exam. And discipleship can be disappointing. Uh, even Jesus had a disciple who betrayed him. And uh, all the others abandoned him at the time he most needed him, needed, needed them. So it's hard. But it's also the only way to produce a rich crop for eternity. And when we see that person grow and run and fly, it is an inexpressible joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you disciple us, you lead us, you, you um, are with us every step of the way. Lord, thank you that um, though it can seem overwhelming to uh, serve and to love others, you are in us by your spirit and you give us all that we need. Lord, lead us on. Show us how we can be a blessing to each other and uh, bring the glory to you, Lord. Amen.